Let's take our Bibles. We're going to do a short study this morning from the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're starting a new study series this morning, which Lord willing will lead us into and kind of go along with some exciting new plans that the Lord is leading us to. And the way I want to approach this series, and the series is about giving, um, the way I want to approach this is a little unusual in the sense that we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the requirements of giving. And we're also not going to approach this from the standpoint of guilt and obligation and pressure. Uh, I I don't want to do that. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of time, including this morning, looking at the heart behind giving. And we're going to talk about how we can be good stewards of our money, our time, uh, the gifts the Lord has given us, which I pray is going to lead us to see uh, all of our giving, everything we do, as an act of joy and honor to the Lord. Now, I'm very aware that giving is a pretty sensitive topic within churches. And this, I think, as I try to think about this, I think this really became uh, more of an issue after some of the uh, mismanagement of uh, some prominent ministries uh, at the end of the 80s. And then it was kind of exacerbated by, I think, the rise of the megachurch, which is not a bad thing, but um, as churches started to get a lot bigger, um, people started to raise questions about uh, how churches spend money. And, and I think those two factors have caused uh, some people to be turned off from church uh, because the phrase I've heard throughout the last 30 or 40 years is, well, all the church wants to do is talk about money. And every time I go, they just want to talk about money. The fact is, our culture is obsessed with money. So it's not like churches are the only ones talking about money, right? Uh, that was true in the 80s, obviously. We know the 80s were kind of the, the greed is good decade, although fantastic music. I'm just going to say that again. Um, but, but everybody talks about money. The news talks about money. Businesses uh, talk about money. Athletes, of course, want more money. Entertainers make an obscene amount of money. Um, and the government right now is obsessed about money, right? Because the government's not working. Those guys don't work enough anyway, but now they're taking another break. Um, and, and this is not, I, granted, there are philosophical, there are political reasons why the government is shut down right now. But the bottom line is, where's the money going? And the agendas that are, that are present, whether good or bad or evil or whatever, um, everything that the, that's going on right now with this government shutdown, the, you know the government shut down, right? <laughs> In case you didn't see it this weekend. But um, everything's just about where is the money allotted? Now, we're $20 trillion in debt, so, you know, that, that goes without saying. But, but it's all about... Is this group going to get money? Is this group going to get money? Is my special committee going to get money? Are my constituents going to get money? Am I going to get money? Everything in our culture is about money. And of course, the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. So we know how this is going to turn out for us as a nation. And we know how it's going to turn out uh, if we continue to be obsessed with money. Now, I want to uh, assure you as a church, and I can say this with all honesty and integrity and sincerity, we don't love money. We rarely talk about it, um, and, and we definitely are not preoccupied with it, and we certainly do not want it driving what we do in terms of our ministry. 
but it is very important that we talk about it. And it's very important that we have a strong and healthy and correct theology about money and about giving. Because over a thousand times the Bible talks about giving. Now that's a lot. We've learned over the years, right, where the, where the Holy Spirit repeats something, we need to pay attention. Well, when the Bible talks a thousand times about money and about giving, it means that we need to pay attention to it. In seven years as your pastor, I've never preached about it. I've never preached a series about it, and I apologize for that. I should have. Um, I'm not going to apologize now for doing a series about it because it's important. And it's important about our theology and our practice and about what we just sang about in terms of our worship. And it's also an issue of our love for the Lord. It's an issue of sacrifice. It's an issue of of a Christ-honoring life. So if it's about worship and love and sacrifice and honoring Christ, can't be bad, right? We can't shy away from it simply because it's a little bit uncomfortable for it. So some of you have not been raised hearing about this. Some of you are not raised in an evangelical church or you're not raised in church at all. So you may not have had... um, kind of biblical instruction about giving and biblical instruction about stewardship. And if that's you this morning, I hope you're excited. And I hope you will be encouraged and strengthened and you'll learn and and you'll have a new level of joy and a new level of dependence learning, how do I give biblically? How do I give in terms of honoring the Lord? And if you're like me and you grew up in the church and your dad was a pastor or you were there all the time, um, you've heard a lot about giving. Maybe you're tired of hearing about giving. Well, for the last seven years, you haven't, um, but now we are. And I want this to be a refresher. I know from my standpoint, I've heard a lot of messages about giving and about money. I want a refresher course. I want to see, again, what the Bible says about giving. Giving, here's the problem. Giving's not a priority in the American church, and it's not a priority for the American Christian, at least the average one. So I'm going to give you, you ready for some stats this morning? I want to give you some statistics about giving in the American church, and we're going to come back to these throughout the series. Among born-again Christians, okay, among born-again Christians, um, as of the last statistic in 2012, only 12% of born-again Christians tithed. Um, 17% of adults claimed to tithe, uh, while actually only 3% do so. 16% of born-again Christians, that's more than tithe, 16% of born-again Christians give no money to the church. 8% of those making $20,000 or less a year gave at least 10% of their income to churches, while those making over 75000 up to 100000 only 1% tithed. The average donation by a Protestant churchgoer is about $17 a week. Think about the money we spent on coffee this week and on the internet, and I'll give you those statistics in a minute. If people in United States evangelical churches raise their giving to the Old Testament standard in in terms of tithing, if they gave 10% of their income, if every evangelical churchgoer gave 10% of their income, the church worldwide would have an additional $139 billion. Now think about what we could do with $139 billion in terms of reaching people for Christ. As of last night, the average United States salary before taxes is about $74,000. So if we were to tithe, if that was your salary, and you were to tithe every week, 
it would equal $142. Additionally, we spend at the following average rate per year. On food, we spend $7,200 a year. On entertainment, $2,900. Cable TV, $1,200. Your cell phone, I think this number's low, $1,000. We spend $500 on pets every year, and we spend $450 on alcohol. I think that's a little higher in this state. Just those six categories, all right? Just those categories, food, entertainment, TV, phone, pets, and alcohol, equals $13,250 a year. Now, without food, let's take that out because we've got to have food to live, right? You can live without a pet. I know some of you can't, but trust me, you can. All right? We certainly can live without alcohol. I'm wanting to live without cable TV anymore. Cell phones, I don't know. We're pretty addicted to those. But let's just take food out of the equation, right? So that would equal, you're not bored yet, right? Tell me you're not bored. We're not bored. Good, good. I know. Without food, we spend on an average $6,150 a year. Okay? So that's $117 a week on entertainment, TV, cell, pet, and alcohol. A tithe of that would, would, of our income would be $142 a week. So a tithe would be 142. We spend on those things 117, but the average churchgoer gives $17 a week. So you can see there's a disparity there, and there's, that's hardly an affirmation that we are obeying the Lord, that we love the Lord, that we've really made a priority on giving to the Lord. But again, I don't give you those statistics to, to shame or to, to make us feel guilty or to go, wow, I can't believe... I hope that happens in terms of our awareness. But this, again, is not about obligation, and it's not about compulsion. It's about understanding how the Lord's blessed us, understanding what the Lord's given to us, and then being good stewards of that. And showing our love and showing our obedience and showing our gratitude and our sacrifice in the way we give, because the Lord tells us, I don't want resentful, resistant, regretful, bitter givers. What does he say? I love what? Cheerful givers. So, so the purpose of these studies is not to, oh, we got to do better, and we spend all this money, and cable TV's from the devil, and you got to get rid of, no, I'm not going to do that, all right? Because that's not going to motivate us. God doesn't need to motivate us. He said, Jesus, right? If we don't get motivation out of Jesus, we've got a problem. So we want to talk about what God has done. So as we realize what God's done and how faithful he is and how how much he's blessed us, now we want to look at how we manage what he's given to us so we not only spend it correctly, but so our theology of giving is correct. Right Now, long introduction, but that leads us to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is kind of an unusual passage uh, to start the series, but the Lord really impressed my heart as I was away this week that this was where we needed to begin. And this is a very interesting chapter in what was most likely Paul's third book to the Corinthians. We only have two. Apparently there was another one, but, but this was the third book. And toward the end of this book, Paul writes what became chapter 12. Now, Corinth was a very difficult church to deal with. 
If you especially study the first part of 1 Corinthians, you know that it was full of division and there, that was an outgrowth of their, of their pride and their stubbornness and their selfishness. They had very poor theology. Um, they had a lack of love for the Lord. They have a lack of love for each other. So a lot of the two books that we have, First and Second Corinthians, are, are dealing with those problems head on. And one other problem that came up, and we see this toward the middle of the second book we have, is that the Corinthians were questioning Paul's apostleship. They were saying, well, you're not one of the original 12, and you're not one of the original 120 that were there at Pentecost in Acts 2, and, and really, we don't, we don't kind of look at you as, as one of the apostles. We know you're a Pharisee. We know you killed Christians before you got saved and apparently got called, and, and, and we're just kind of... We're just kind of questioning you, Paul. We don't think you really have the authority to speak to us and to tell us how we should be living. Now, isn't that typical of the enemy? Of course, anytime there's sin, there's resistance to correction. But the enemy loves to constantly remind us of the shame of our past. And a lot of people are stuck in this. They, they, their, their past is attached to them like glue. And the stigma of that kind of teaches them and, and speaks to their mind and says, well, I can't move past that because there's so much. And Paul, you don't even know some of it. And, and, and I just, I can't move beyond it. And, and I'm kind of stuck with it. And I don't think God can kind of really re- refresh me. I can't grow in the Lord. I can't do ministry because you just don't understand what my past is like. Remember something my dad used to say. He used to say, anytime the enemy tries to remind you of, his, of your past, just remember what his future is. The enemy's already defeated. Christ has already won. The battle is over. It's still ongoing, but the outcome is already decided. So when the enemy tries to say, well, God doesn't love you and God hasn't forgiven you and there's no redemption and God certainly couldn't cleanse you. I mean, look at the mess you made of your life. There's no way God could forgive you. Just remember the cross and just remember the empty tomb because that empty tomb means the liar is defeated. The liar is defeated and his outcome is the lake of fire in torment forever for taking on God. So in that victory that we have, we know that when somebody says, well, you had a bad past and you did this and boy, look at at that mess and how can you get beyond that? Listen, that's what the redemption of Christ is about. If we don't have victory through Christ, let's turn off the lights and go home and watch the pregame, right? Because we're wasting our time. The reason we're here, the reason Paula can stand up and say, look how God's blessed me, look how God's led me, look how he's, he's ministered to me, is because of Christ. Now, Paul knew that. His testimony was unbelievable. Here's a guy, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, knew the law, memorized the first five books of the Bible, was the top-notch guy, everybody looked to him, finest education. I mean, you do not have a better resume than the Apostle Paul did. So zealous for the Lord, he says in Philippians 3, that he went and killed Christians, this little uprising, and this Jesus who came along. No, the Pharisees weren't having anything to do with that. So here's the top Pharisee, Paul, and it says in the Bible that he he carried out threats against the church. So as the church starts to form and blossom and grow, Paul says, no, we got to put the quietus on this. So he goes around killing people and approving of the killing people. He's standing there in Acts 6 when Stephen takes the first rock 
to the head and falls down and looks up into the heaven and sees Jesus and the stones keep raining down. It says Paul was standing there watching. So this guy's got a resume. And yet, God said, I have different plans for you. Because all the things you're trying to do to be righteous, all of them are, as Paul says later, they're dung. They're worthless. They're garbage. And God confronts Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts, and he says, why are you persecuting not my church, not my people? Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul has a transformation in his experience as he goes from death to life, and his eyes are blinded, and then they're opened. And out of that grows a powerful ministry to the Gentiles, and this man becomes one of the, if not the greatest evangelist of all time, because he just goes place to place and says, look at what God has done. Now, the Corinthians were not convinced. And they didn't think that he had the right to tell them. So I want you to drop back a page to chapter 10. We're going to read in a second. In chapter 10, Paul talks about how his character had evidenced itself, this transformation that had taken place, had evidenced itself to them in the times that he had been with them and the times that he had ministered to them and what he had written to them. And then in chapter 11... He defends his calling. You can read these chapters this week. He defends his calling as an apostle, specifically to Gentiles like them. And he talks about how God has used him, how God's protected him, how God's blessed him in all that he's done to serve in the work of the Lord. That leads us over to chapter 12. In chapter 12, Paul reveals in the first part specific details about a unique spiritual revelation that God had given to him. He had a vision, and in that vision, he was transported, so to speak, to heaven. And, and it's complex, and we can talk about it another time because I don't want to get off track. But, but because of this unbelievable vision that nobody else had ever had, he said, it would have been easy for me to become arrogant. Would have been easy for me to say, well, look at me. Boy, I had a vision. You guys have no idea what I've been through. I have seen heaven while I'm alive, it's been unbelievable, and I, and I had this. But, God, but Paul says, because God didn't want me to exalt myself, he gave me difficulty. He gave what Paul refers to, and you can see it here in verse uh, 8, uh, excuse me, verse 7. He says, God gave me a thorn in my flesh. Now, scholars have debated this for a year what this was, but apparently Paul had some physical uh, 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 affliction that he could not get rid of. And he prays, and he asks God to deliver them. And then we see this great verse in verse eight, uh, verse 9, where Christ says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So, so God says, I want to keep you humble. I don't want you to exalt yourself. So I'm going to give you this infirmity. And when we have difficulty like that, when we go through a trial like that, rather than becoming bitter, and rather than falling back and saying, Well, God just doesn't help me, Christ wants us to see that that time of weakness is a time to experience his strength. Those that wait upon the Lord, Isaiah says, will renew their strength, right? They'll mount up on wings like eagles. So, so anytime there's trial, difficulty, weakness, affliction, and those are hard times, and some of us have been through an amazing difficulty over the years of dealing with these kinds of things. But God says, that's the time to come back and trust in me. So Paul stays humble 
and he says to the Corinthians, look, this was, this was evidence that I'm trying to serve the Lord to the best of my ability. I'm not pushing an agenda. I'm not trying to, to tell you what to do because I've got an attitude and because I've been to heaven in my dream and, and because I've, yeah, he, I'm not doing that. And they still don't believe him. So Paul says to them, well, you need to understand that the way you've treated me has humbled me too. There's a little dig there if you look at verses 11 and 12. Study that this week. He kind of says, you know, I've, I've been humbled by dealing with you guys. Wink, wink. In other words, you've not made it easy. And the fact that you haven't made it easy has kept me even more f- humble. I didn't come in and overwhelm you with my words and you all fell at my feet and said, oh, great apostle of Jesus Christ, you are the one who... He said, no, you guys treated me really poorly. So I've taught, I've been humbled, I've done signs and wonders, you've seen those things. And at the end, right before we read what we're going to read, he says, listen, don't treat me inferiorly. Is that a word? Inferiorly? We're going to make it a word. Don't treat me as inferior. That's better English, isn't it? Because I'm not treating you, Corinth, as inferior. And the bottom line, the underlying principle there is, look, if I want to compare you to Philippi, you guys are a mess. If I want to compare you to Galatia, where the theology is stronger, you guys don't hold a candle. If I compare you to Ephesus and to Rome and all the other churches that Paul wrote to, listen, you guys are at, you guys are at the bottom of the pack here, okay? You're doing terrible. I've had to write three letters to you admonishing you about your pride and your lack of love and your hostility toward me and toward Apollos and toward everybody else. Look, look if we're going to compare apples here, you guys are rotten. But I'm not going to do that. So because I'm not doing that, don't treat me as inferior to Peter and John and James and Andrew. Because I'm not. We're on the same level. We're all saved by the grace of God. Now, why do we take so much time on that? That's over half the message. Why do we do that? Well, it's really important for us to understand and get a very clear picture of Paul's heart for the Corinthians. Because it would have been so easy to get so frustrated and to confront them and challenge them and yell at them and call them out. And he does. He calls them out. But he always does it by speaking the truth in love. And he does it with a genuine concern for their condition and for their witness. And he wants them to know, look, I'm not coming to you. Go and give me some money. And that's where we get to this passage here in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. At this stage of his ministry, Paul's not making tents anymore. He's down the path in terms of his ministry. So he's full-time itinerant, traveling from town to town to town to town to town, meeting believers, setting up churches, establishing, teaching theology, taking on people who confronted him. Paul is working full-time in ministry. So he's not hanging out with Aquila and Priscilla and making tents part-time and then preaching part-time. This is his job, and he has to be supported as he travels and incurs expenses. Some of the churches that were more mature, like Philippi, were sending him over and above. They were really ministering to him and helping him. But then there were churches like Corinth. And Corinth, because their theology was bad, because their practice was bad, didn't understand the need for giving. So look at what Paul writes in verses 14 and 15. 
here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I won't be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Christ, gave Paul these words. And the reason he gave Paul these words is because these words could have been spoken by Jesus himself. I want you to look back at two phrases. If you underline in your Bible, underline. If you take notes like Paula does, write these phrases down because these are of utmost importance, okay? Phrase number one, verse 14, I do not seek what is yours, but you. Okay? I do not seek what is yours, but you. Phrase two, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. So, phrase one, I do not seek what's yours but you. Phrase two, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Now, what's Paul saying here? And how does what he says here uh, 2,000 years ago apply to our understanding of giving? Well, I want to go very quickly through four principles, four core principles of giving and of money. All right? And I'm calling these what the Lord really wants. What the Lord really wants. These principles come directly out of these two verses, and they're going to lay the foundation for all the other studies we're going to do in this series, because when we get this right, we've got it, okay? Actually, I said four principles, it's only going to be three, okay? Three principles. Principle number one, the Lord wants our heart more than he wants our money. The Lord wants our heart more than he wants our money, because the bottom line is the Lord doesn't need your money. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. He put the stars in the sky. We sang that earlier. I knew there was a reason why we were going to sing that song. He put the stars in the sky. He formed the earth with his hands. He formed you and me out of the dust. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns everything else. So my bank account and my giving is not going to tip the scales on whether God can accomplish his work. What I give in a year, what we give as a family, how, how we give in terms of ministry and sacrifice and whatever, that, that's not going to take God over the edge like, oh, finally, the, the roads gave, so now we can do ministry. God owns everything. Everything I have is from Him. I don't have ownership of it. I have a title to my house, but the bank owns it. Everything we have, when we die, I'm not putting my van in my casket. It's not going to fit in there. It's going to be me. Naked I came into the world, and naked I go out. That's it. Nothing I have is owned by me. So when we understand that God doesn't need our money, it's very important. Now you're going, oh, yes, this is my favorite sermon on giving. God doesn't need my money. It's not an either or, it's a both and. It's a both and. The more he has of our heart, the more we're going to want to give to him. Now we have to start our studies with this principle because we can't discuss financial giving, we can't discuss percentages, we can't discuss how we use our time and our spiritual gifts 
if this isn't right, if God does not have our heart, if we are not wholehearted in our love and devotion to the one who saved us and forgave us and redeemed us and cleansed us and adopted us, if he doesn't have our love and devotion, what is the point of talking about how much we're going to give? Because at that point, it's just obligatory. All right, give 10%. Can't do 10%. I'll give 5%. There, I got it out of the way. You don't have to preach any more messages about giving. I get it. I'm done. It's, it's over. Listen, the amount that you and I give ultimately does not matter if we're not in love with the Lord. It doesn't matter. And if we're not fully surrendered to the Lord, I don't care if you give a dollar a week or $10,000 a week. It won't make a bit of difference. I've known people over the years who gave tremendous, I mean, money I don't understand, tremendous amounts of money to ministries, and yet they're not living in any way a spirit-filled, sanctified life. It's a tax write-off. It's, it's money to, to overwhelm their conscience. It's well-intentioned. They want to support the Lord's work. But when you look at their life, you would never know from the carnality of their words or actions that they're giving to the work of the Lord. Then there are other people who seem to have very little to give, but their humility and their personal sacrifice just radiates from them. And, and the heart of Christ shows in them, and the evidence of the Spirit's filling is evident. And, and I don't know what they give, but people tell me, you'd be amazed what some of the people give. The depth of their financial sacrifice, it doesn't seem like they have anything. Because their heart's right. And we all know, right, that God doesn't look at the checkbook. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. Tell me what he looks at. Looks at our heart, right? So he's not impressed if I make $4 million a year. He's not impressed if I make $4 a year. And Jesus himself points to who? He points to the widow who comes up and drops a minuscule, I mean minuscule amount of money. And he says, there, look at her. And all the Pharisees are walking up, dropping their coins from a pie because you dropped them into a big jug. So they drop it up high so it'd make a lot of noise. Oh, look at me. I just gave a lot of money. Yeah, and, and here comes this little widow. Nobody's watching her. And she just drops two little, two little coins. And Jesus says, I'm not impressed by you guys. Look at her. You go, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. She just gave a tiny little amount. But Jesus says she gave all she had. And her heart is right. When our hearts are right and we're in love with the Lord and we're surrendered to the Lord, giving will not be an obligation. It will be a humble expression of how grateful we are and how much we love the Lord. We're going to look at that more in the weeks ahead, but I want you to get, I want us to get that principle first, right? The Lord wants our heart more than he wants our money. Second, look back at verses 14 and 15. The Lord wants us to have this same mindset toward him. The Lord wants us to have this same mindset toward him. Reverse the two sentences that we just wrote down or underlined and, and make them a declaration from you to the Lord. Okay, let's read them again that way. I do not seek anything but you. 
I will most gladly spend and be expended for your spirit. Now think about how transformative that is. I don't want anything, Lord. I don't want to seek anything but you. And, and I will gladly expend everything I have to have more and more of your spirit. How many think that the Lord would love to hear that being said by his people? That's what God's waiting for. That's what God wants out of his church. And before we talk about the theology of giving and all those things and tithing, and we'll do that, we need to understand that this is the essence of, This is the essence of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because he said, if you're not willing to forsake all, if your love for me doesn't make it seem like you hate everybody in comparison, if you're not to that place, then you aren't worthy to be my disciple. Those are harsh, strong words. It seems like an impossible standard for us. And yet Jesus turns around and says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? How can that be? How can he say you have to be willing to give up everything to serve me? And yet this is, this is easy. Because when we think about the first phrase, we think about it humanly, don't we? And yet he says, here's what I've done for you. I've changed your nature. I've renewed your mind. I've given you my instruction. And I've indwelled you with my spirit. So when I say... Be willing to give everything. Your perspective is different. It's been radically blown apart and reshaped. And now you understand what I'm talking about. That is why a disciple of Jesus Christ cannot be half-hearted. A disciple of Jesus Christ cannot be double-minded. A disciple of Jesus Christ cannot be lukewarm. We are either all in or we are all out. You're either his, and he's yours, or you're not. I, I, we can't come to the Lord and say, well, Lord, I'm trying my best, and I'm giving you about 80%. Nope, he wants all of it. He's looking for all I seek, Lord, is you. I, I'll gladly expend everything. You, you take what you want. You give and take away. Praise the name of the Lord, because I'm, I'm, I'm yours. And anything less isn't worthy of the love and sacrifice that Jesus exemplified at the cross. Drop back for a second to chapter 9, verses 7 to 8. Let's try to finish this up. Each one, each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able. Notice this. After he says, don't give out of obligation and compulsion, give cheerfully. Now we say, all right, well, you're asking me to give my life, and you're asking me now to give generously and joyfully. Well, I don't know how I'm going to do that. That doesn't make me feel very cheerful. God always answers our concerns, right? Look at verse 8. And God is able, oh, of course he is, to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything. Do you notice that in the span of about 15 words, God uses the word all four times? He would make all grace abound to you, so that, say it with me, always having, oh, come on, you guys are slow. We're going to start again. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that 
having sufficiency in? You guys sounded so excited just then. I want to do it again, but we're running short on time, so we won't. But get some joy now, okay? Look at what God's saying to us. I'm able to make all my grace abound. Just that sentence alone should make us fall to our knees. I'm able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have a, say this word, happy with me. You may have a what? Abundance for how many good deeds? Everyone. I don't know of a verse in Scripture that is more extreme than that verse. I'll give you all grace so that in everything you'll be abounding always, having everything you need, all sufficiency is coming for every single situation. I will help you. Now you look at that verse, and there's another application. As our hearts are given completely to the Lord, any calling, any assignment, any stretching of our faith that's outside of our comfort zone We don't have to do it grudgingly, under compulsion, okay, I'll do it. No, he says, I'll give you everything you need. So do it joyfully. And to me, that's the essence of Philippians 4.11. Paul says, as he's sitting in jail with no friends, no books, no blanket, nobody wants to talk to him anymore, he's rotting in there. He's writing to people saying, please, Timothy, please come see me. Bring me a coat. I'm so cold. Imagine the Apostle Paul. And he says, my favorite verse in Scripture, I've learned to be content in all things. Oh, come on, that's the essence of faith, Right? I've learned to be content because God supplies everything I need. That's not just saying, I'm getting through. It's another day. I survived another day. No, he's saying, I'm thriving because God's faithful and I'm in joy and I'm fulfilled. And even if I have to sit in this lousy cell, I can write to you, Philippi, and tell you, go for it. Have the mind of Christ. Know the strength. Fill your mind with the right things. Come on, live for the Lord now, and Jesus will help you. That fits with the third spiritual principle. Let me just give you this, because I think it's important. Number one, the Lord wants our heart more than he wants our money. Number two, the Lord wants us to have the same mindset toward him. Number three, the Lord wants us to apply these truths to the other areas of our lives. How often is it true that the people we care about and the people who need us don't need the accumulation of more stuff? They need us. Men, your wife don't need, doesn't need a bigger house. She doesn't need a newer car. She doesn't need you to reach greater prominence and power in your job. What does she need? She needs your presence. She needs your interest. She needs you to minister to her and your family. She needs you to lead spiritually. She needs you to support her and help her in the running of the home and the raising of your children. Men, we need to do that. Women, your husband doesn't need you to make all the other women jealous with your beauty and your parenting skills and your homeschooling and your crafting and your use of essential oils. We don't need that. We don't need you to be some Proverbs 31 woman times 10. You know what we need? We need your prayer. 
your support, your understanding that, that we're not always going to be a world beater, that, that it's hard to be a spiritual leader. We just want your time and your presence, and we want less essential oils. Am I right, men? Thank you for the amen. I appreciate that, brother. Parents, your kids don't need the hottest electronics as much as they need your time. They need your interest. They need high spiritual standards that you're not only telling them, but you're living out by example. So they know that it's okay to stand for holiness. It's okay to reject the damaging influence of the world because the world's trying to drown them in self-indulgence. And, and we need to tell them no. Kids, our kids aren't in here. But let's talk to the kids anyway, all right? We don't need our kids to be valedictorian and the greatest athlete and the most popular student, and we don't need them to detach from us uh, because they're busy. We need them to know to choose their friends wisely, to grow in their faith, to hold the high standards so they don't get sucked in because the world's trying to suck them in. Church, we don't need people who preach like Spurgeon. Nobody preaches like Spurgeon. That's why he's Spurgeon. Moody's moody. Pastors I listen to, I get insecure. I'm like, I'm never going to preach like that. You know what? God hasn't called me to preach like that. He hasn't called me to, to have the prayer ministry of Daniel Nash. He hasn't called me to, to blow people away with singing or with, with whatever we do. We need people, and, and church, you do this so well, we need people who are served joyfully and use their gifts to bless and edify people. We need people to step up and teach children the word of God. We need people like we did during the greeting to put their arms around other people and pray for them and to intercede and, and to draw closer in worship. We need people who will give sacrificially. We need people who will use their talents to paint and renovate and, and lay salt out on the ice and to clean and to move chairs and to serve food, all in the joy of the Lord. We, we need continued, unified support together as a church because God's called us to do the work of the Lord, and every single person in this room has gifts to do that. Because God's not saying, Paul Rhodes, be Charles Spurgeon. He's saying, Paul Rhodes, I don't want what you have. I want you. I want you. Jesus said, I gave myself for you he gladly expended himself for us now he says if you're going to give give in the same mindset this is where giving begins and when we get this right we get this right, God help us. All the rest of the studies we're going to do will be like gravy. We won't even think about it. It'll be like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what God's called me to do. That's the way I'm supposed to give of my money and my talent, my time, and my gifts. That, that's what I'm supposed to do. It makes sense. Because my heart's given to the Lord. 